Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the spread of a transformative communication technology across the Islamic world in the modern era. Not the internet, but the spread of printing. We're looking at how the spread of print technology and the decisions made by the Arab Islamic editors and printers who, who used the new technology for different and sometimes competing purposes, transformed Islamic, religious and intellectual life across the 19th century. And we'll be seeing how this technological revolution was so successful that it's now paradoxically invisible because we take for granted so many of the changes that printing brought about in the 19th and early 20th century. Joining me in this conversation is Ahmed Ashemsi. He's an associate professor in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. And he's the author of Rediscovering the Islamic Classics, How Editors and Print Culture Transformed an Intellectual Tradition, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2020. <laughs> Hello, Ahmed. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, Niall. It's great to be here. Well, today we're going to be talking about the, the broad topic of religion and technology. But we're not going to be talking about the iPhone, the internet, even podcasts, but we're going to be talking about the printing press. And we'll be seeing in the Islamic world, as in anywhere, the printing spread. The printing press brought about massive intellectual and religious changes. Now, before we move into our particular topic of printing in the Islamic world, it, it's essential to know that to all intents and purposes, printing doesn't really spread among Muslims until the 19th century. There are a couple of exceptions. The Ottoman printer Ibrahim Mutafarika, who in Istanbul in the 1730s prints some 17 books, but he's an early outlier. And indeed, there are printed Muslim books block printed in Chinese in the 18th century as well. But this isn't a widespread technology that affects Muslims in many regions, particularly, not particularly the Middle East. And it's the Middle East and especially the, the Arab Middle East that we're going to be focusing on today. And most particularly Egypt. And for good reason, as we'll be hearing and you'll be telling us, that Egypt and particularly Cairo becomes in many ways the, the epicenter of this printing, or at least this Arabic, Arabic-Islamic printing revolution. So in short, then, we'll be talking about the transformative impact of printing on Arab Islamic Middle Eastern religious life between around the mid-19th and some way into the 20th century. So to help us understand what it was that changed, can you lay out for us, Ahmed, the landscape of Islamic learning, Muslim religious intellectual life in the period that preceded the arrival of printing? Well, so... I have to uh, admit here that uh, my 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 own views on this have have uh, changed quite a bit, and and they were quite naive uh, at the entry point when I when I began um, uh, researching this topic. And the kind of the overall image I had was this um, kind of Arabo-Islamic culture being uh, thoroughly uh, bibliophilic in the sense that. You know, already the Quran refers to itself as a book. Uh, you know, we have these nice uh, books on parchment, these these copies of the Quran already from the first generation of Muslims. We have uh, uh, papyri, Arabic papyri from the first generation of Muslims from Egypt. We have uh, Arabic inscription in the Arabian Peninsula very early, from very early Islam onwards. Then in the um, sometimes in the in the eighth century, um, the Arabs adopt paper as their main. Uh, um, mode of of uh, of writing, and, and and then you really have an explosion 
of, of, of books being written, hundreds of thousands, millions of books uh, being written anew, being translated from other languages, whether it is from um, uh, kind of a Greek, uh, Latin, Syriac, or from the other direction, a Sanskrit, uh, etc. Um, you know, you have books written in praise of books. You have uh, Al-Jahiz dying from, you know, being buried under books because he spent whole nights, you know, in, in, in bookshops reading, etc. Um, and then at some point, oh, yes, um, the printing press comes and then things are printed. But, um, you know, there are, uh, you know, I, I, I've tried to move away from this kind of essentialization of, of uh, uh, kind of Arab-Islamic, culture as, as bibliophilic and kind of really get a bit more of a finely grained historical view. Um, and uh, there are several um, challenges to this culture. Um, there's challenges to the primacy of Arabic, um, you know, beginning in the 11th century, there's the rise of Persian, uh, later on the rise of uh, kind of Turkic languages in, in, in written form. Uh, so that kind of uh, um, uh, goes against this this um, monopoly of Arabic as the Islamic uh, written language, and, and Arabic books being the uh, the, the, the unitary uh, kind of lingua franca of of, of, of educated elites. This gets then um, uh, 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 exacerbated through the Mongol invasion, uh, where, where there's kind of a, a kind of a break in the sense that um, while strictly religious um, topics like let's say like Islamic law is still mainly written in Arabic. Uh, in the eastern parts, you have uh, really a, an explosion in, in, in Persian or Persianate uh, poetry and kind of history writing and uh, 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 prose writing, etc. Um, and then uh, you know politically speaking, you know you have of course the, the rise of the Ottomans, uh, non-Arabic uh, um, centers of power suddenly emerging, the Arab. Um, countries becoming provinces of non-Arab uh, uh, empires, um, and then the, the, the bureaucrats of these, of new, these new empires um, having, you know, they kind of, normally they knew, know some Arabic most, most of the time, but it's not necessarily the prestige language anymore. Uh, and, and even that changes over time, uh, you know, while in the 16th century, Ottoman scholars still write uh, pretty frequently Arabic books, so kind of in the 17th, 18th century, it becomes much, much rarer um, phenomenon, and then um, when when you look at, uh, and that's something that that genuinely surprised me when when I started writing this book, this book is um, when you look at 18th century, uh, even 17th 18th century uh, libraries being uh, founded in, in in Arab countries. Um, you know we have their their endowment documents that that list the books that that were endowed to these libraries. And their holdings look pretty poor, uh, even compared to earlier centuries. Um, you have libraries that have, um, you know, 400, 500 books. That's okay. Let's say in, in the European Middle Ages, there would been a lot, but um, uh, certainly um, at that time, uh, compared to European libraries, it, it was very little. But also compared to uh, the accounts that we have of, of earlier uh, libraries in whether it's Baghdad or Cairo, etc., um, in, uh, in in earlier periods. So you have a, a dearth of of uh, you know, of, of publicly available books and these, these, these uh, libraries that are, that are newly founded. Uh, we also have accounts of, of already uh, established libraries uh, kind of um, losing books. And, and, and part of the, uh, you know, I, I give the example of the, um, uh, the Mahmoudiyya uh, Library in Cairo that has 4,000 books in the 16th century. And then in the 19th century, when their holdings get included in the newly established National Library in Egypt, there's only 56 copies left. So what happens in the, in the, in the meantime? Um, um, there, there, there are several answers to that question that I've come up with. Um, firstly, there are kind of, there are material reasons for it. Um, material reasons in the sense that, you know, books go where there's money. Um, if, you, if, you, if you are wealthy, a wealthy patron, if you're a wealthy dynasty, uh, you, uh, invest money in libraries and you bring books to your capital and uh, the, the, the capital in the uh, kind of the post-classical period, 16th to 19th century, um, were not in the Arab world. They were outside of the Arab world. If we, if we exclude places like, like, uh, like Morocco, for example, um, but you know, there were places like Istanbul or Isfahan or uh, Delhi or wherever else. Um, um, 
and uh, so so we we can even trace that 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 uh, that uh, the, the rich libraries in Istanbul actually contain a lot of books that were originally endowed in Cairo or in Damascus, for example. So that that's one one thing. Um, uh, secondly, there is a um, uh, the, the 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 Muslim system of endowments, uh, which is which is meant to be for for eternity. Yeah, you, you endow a library, you endow uh, whatever a madrasa or a mosque with its with its with a library uh, is meant to live forever. Um, you know, you 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 give this, you alienate this property, you give it to God literally, uh, and it's meant to and and you provide it with some source of income, right? A piece of land or a market or whatever a building that is rented out. Um, but that only really works in theory. In practice, um, you know, prices fall um, or the, the buildings need to be uh, renovated. And if you don't have, uh, you know, after a century or two or three or four, whatever, you, have, you don't have re a new investment or new endowment, then these endowments start to um, uh, um, uh, cease working. And one of the first things that you can, uh, that, 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 that ceases working is the library, the librarians don't get paid anymore. Then they, as it happens, they disappear when you don't pay them anymore. And then the first thing that you can sell um, is, is is books as well, right? to, to to make money. You can't sell, you know, you can't sell. This. I mean, it's not as easy to sell the stones in the building, but books are pretty easy to 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 be uh, made into money. So uh, th that that's another issue that you have um, um, kind of economic problems that happened, well-known established uh, economic problems uh, in the in the 17th century and the 18th century that lead to the uh, depletion of these of these endowed libraries, these publicly uh, endowed libraries in, in Arab countries, and then um, uh, finally, um, you uh, th th there is also intellectual reasons for for this um, kind of decline in 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 interest in books. One of them uh, is a rise of of a commentary culture in which. Um, the, the, the debate that happens in, a, in specific fields kind of focuses on really a handful of texts and then on, on commentaries that are, that are produced on those texts. Uh, and uh, so the, the horizon um, uh, of specialists that, that deal in whether it's history or theology or law um, be, becomes relatively limited in sense of the, the, the original works that they are dealing with. And they be, become primarily concerned with uh, with a variety of commentaries and super commentaries and, and tertiary commentaries that are written on, on specific texts. So that is, that is a, a phenomenon where you have, uh, um, you know, you, you look in a library under a, a specific topic and there's, you know, 80 books, but it really, you know, these are 80 commentaries and they really, you can reduce them to four or five, um, four or five texts uh, uh, that are commented on there. So that, that's one thing, this is kind of a commentary culture tradition that, that, that excludes other books. Uh, and then secondly, a kind of uh, esoteric Sufism that starts to um, kind of uh, um, be critical, kind of be almost kind of bibliophobic in the sense that, that book learning becomes a sign of, of superficial knowledge and that the true, uh, the true savant is, is the person who, um, who gains knowledge through some kind of Neoplatonic con connection uh, of, of inspiration, rather than than than, than reading books and 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 uh, and so on. So th there is a, um, a kind of a new epistemic sense that um, it is not in books where you can find answers to to your you know to your intellectual ambitions. And so you have a, a connection of 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 uh, kind of physical challenges to uh, book culture to libraries. Uh, you have a, with that, you have a, a kind of decline of revenues for madrasas, for, for educational institutions. Um, you have uh, 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 literate elites, bureaucratic elites that, that don't necessarily read those Arabic books anymore. They, they might be reading Persian books or Turkic books. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, and given that we are in a manuscript culture still, you know, you don't have 5,000 copies of each book available and if you only have 20, 20 copies they can and, and, and you don't have acid-free paper they can disappear pretty quickly um, and so you have a um, uh, I think a, a kind of really uh, quantifiable decline of, uh, of the numbers of books that are available and that are circulating in, in Arab countries and um, so that the 
um, and, and the last point I wanted to mention is that uh, the 19th century also is the century of, of European hunger for Arabic books. So together with the kind of institutional weakness of, uh, of Arabic libraries, you have uh, um, a parallel movement of, of, of European Orientalists and libraries and, and donors uh, really wanting to um, kind of suck up all knowledge, all global knowledge, including Arabic manuscripts. And so you, you have what I call a book drain towards Europe that begins when you know, it happened, you, know, you have 17, you know, from the 17th, 18th, 19th century, but really in the second part of the 19th century, where you really have institutional power, where uh, national libraries, whether it's the British Library or the, the Prussian State Library, et cetera, make enormous expenses. I mean, really like in, in today's money, that would be hundreds of millions um, uh, that, 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 that get pumped into, uh, into these book markets that totally uh, uh, skew the book market in the Middle East and, and really suck out um, tens of thousands of manuscripts. And you think tens of thousands of books, that's not very much, but, but uh, particularly the, the, these book collectors are interested in early books, in rare books, in, 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 in um, unique copies. And so you have um, um, books that today only survive in Western libraries, histories, early histories, uh, early theological treatises, early uh, uh, prose works or, or poetry works that only survive in Western libraries and that originate there from uh, kind of 19th century Orientalists who went to the Middle East and paid big bucks to get these works. Well, that's, that, that's really fascinating, Ahmed. And that's, you've given us there in just over 10 minutes a sort of a, a grand but very clear picture of, let's say, religious learning and perhaps learning altogether um, from, let's say, the, the period of the revelation of the Quran in the 600, 610, 620s, or 610s, 620s, I should say, through, through to the 19th century. And what you've pointed out to us, is this is by no means a static period, isn't it? And, and many, many things are changing. And perhaps if I can sort of, you know, kind of sum up in some ways of what you've said, you, you've told us that books, what we think of as a book is changing, language is changing, and indeed methods of learning. Because as you pointed out, the Quran itself talks in terms of kitab, book. So we, we almost often assume, whether as, whether as Muslims or indeed just as, as, as scholars of Islam, that the book is, that's a given from the beginning. The Quran talks about itself as a book, book is there, Christians and Jews and perhaps others are considered as al-Kitab, people of the book. That's almost a given. And indeed in early medieval Baghdad, we have booksellers like the famous Ibn al-Nadim who writes this who left this catalogue of, as you said, books on every subject, novels, cookbooks, translations from Sanskrit, mathematical treatises, histories, whatever. But that's not a static picture, as you just said. Books, for the reasons you've explained, they're not necessarily the same thing, the same contents, and indeed they, they don't survive. You've also pointed out that language, we, just because the, the Quran is in Arabic and nowadays often we'll often, whether superficially think of Arabic as the language of Islam, or indeed for perhaps global Islamic changes, or indeed perhaps I would even suggest changes that are consequent, that come out of the, of the, the print and Arabic printed revival you're going to be telling us more about. Because of these modern changes, there's often assumption that Arabic, Arabic always had the same status among Muslims from the revelation of the Quran through till the present day. And yet, as you pointed out, there are all of these other languages that, that emerge, languages of religious learning and religious almost revelation, not perhaps on the scale of the Quran, but, but the Mathnavi of Rumi, the Sufi Rumi is famously called the, Pers the, the Quran in the Persian language. It, it's not, and it, that's met metaphorically, but it gives a sense of its status. And many other Akbar's chambers, we, we've explored Malay, Turkic, oral Turkic, literary Turkic, as well as many other languages. So Arabic isn't sort of fixed or necessarily language that's learned or even primarily available or necessarily even valued as the most important religious language. And, and not least in the Ottoman period, as you said, there were these bureaucratic developments that then if you want a job, you would, you're better off to learn Ottoman Turkish to get a job in the bureaucracy. And that's even the case in places like Egypt or, or indeed Syria for centuries, or even of course Mecca and Medina for 400 years part of the Ottoman empire as well for the best part of 400 years. And then the third thing you point out, then books and language change and so do learning methods, both in terms of this 
obsession with commentaries, writing books about books about books, and the original subject of the, the commentary is, is often literally lost, that, that, that ur text, that original text that's supposed to be written about. And then the rise of what you've, you've called sort of esoteric thinking, what we might usually call Sufism or mystical Islam. And what you were, how you're explaining that actually, that, that sort of in a sense that I think you called it, did you say bibliophobia or something similar, but the opposite of bibliophilia, you know, this sort of books are not valued. That made me think of a very influential uh, 13th century uh, philosopher, not really a Sufi, but in a way, a mystical philosopher, wrote in it, Arabic, in fact, as more than Persian, Shahabuddin Surah Adu, died in 1192. And he has this, this, this theory of there are two types of knowledge. Uh, if I remember correctly, so acquired knowledge and book reading, what you acquire from reading a book or going to a class. And sort of knowledge by presence, by which he means direct experiential knowledge and most particularly mystical experience. And for sort of idea, as for many of the other figures you have in mind then, then it's actually that sort of mystical experiential knowledge, mystical experience, that's more valuable than whatever you're going to get from a book. So, of course, Sufis write books, and they're all kind of these paradoxes as well. They're actually huge, mega voluminous, you know, producers of, of manuscript books as well. But nonetheless, there is that, as you say, that kind of suspicion of, of books as well. So through whether thinking actually about books or language or learning methods, there's an enormous amount of change leading up to the 19th century when printing arrives, printing is adopted very deliberately and for deliberate agendas and aims in the 19th century, in the Arab Middle East, uh, not least. As we move towards then, this big change then, can you tell us, Ahmed, how and when did printing come to be adopted in the Arab Middle East? And moreover, who was using printing presses for what purposes? I mean, so the, the, the first point, and that, that took me a while to, to kind of uh, get to and realize is that, that um, it's not necessarily that, that the reason why you don't print books is that you haven't invented the technology of print yet. It's not, it's not necessarily a, a, a no-brainer. Um, and, and, and particularly for, for economic reasons, if you have a society that is primarily uh, illiterate, um, there might not be an economic incentive to print books uh, because it, it takes a lot of investment uh, initially to buy the machines. Um, uh, it takes investment uh, in the sense of, you have to predict a market, right? If you want to uh, print 2000 copies, you have to be, you know, you only make money after you sold the, I don't know, the thousandth copy or something like this. So you need to be able to predict that this that is going to be bought, um, uh, and uh, you know if you have a scribal culture in which you know you 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 produce a manuscript when somebody wants a manuscript, and uh, if you have competent scribes, then they can do this and you can make money that way, and, and that's how it how it went until the primarily until the nineteenth century. As you mentioned, there were uh, uh, experiments earlier, but that didn't uh, properly take off, but. What happened in the early 19th century is that, um, and particularly here, that's where the story starts in Egypt, is that um, uh, uh, Mehmet Ali or Muhammad Ali, however you want to call him, uh, this um, uh, kind of Ottoman officer who uh, re-establishes Ottoman control over Egypt after the French, uh, after Napoleon's uh, 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 occupation of Egypt, uh, wants to build a modern state, and and one of the tools of modern state building is uh, a way of of, of communication uh, within the state, which is the printing press. So uh, he wants to uh, have a newspaper, a government newspaper, like a gazette that that allows basically all people who work for the government to be on the same page. Um, uh, he wants uh, education of his officer corps uh, in the modern sciences that he has encountered when fighting with the French. So uh, they need to have translations of whatever French artillery manuals or Italian, uh, whatever uh, engineering manuals, etc. Uh, and for all of these things, you need uh, a printed books. And so he, uh, he establishes uh, in, in, in Bulak in the kind of uh, port town or kind of port 
of, of Cairo, uh, a press in, in um, uh, well, I mean, uh, 1821, 1822. Uh, and, and, and at the beginning, these, these are really, uh, this has nothing to do with the rediscovery of Islamic classics as a title my book. Uh, this is really, uh, uh, these are tools for the kind of state that he imagines uh, building. And he's obviously very successful at least at the beginning uh, in doing this. So the, the first book that is, that is published there is, is a, a Arabic Italian dictionary. Um, and so there are a lot of uh, translations that are published, a lot of school books that are published. Um, but uh, this technology, uh, you know, is, is so successful that um, after, a few, after a decade or two, uh, the government says, okay, we have these powerful machines, they're not always working. Um, so we could theoretically, we could allow private citizens to have books printed that they are interested in printing. And so they allow some of the capacity of the state print to be used by private individuals. And so you have uh, kind of the, the traditional copyists uh, that, that uh, copy um, uh, texts for students at Al-Azhar Al University in Cairo, for example, the seminary, um, to print the texts that, that they know their students you know, need every year, the school texts. Uh, and and so, so they do that. Uh, so you have uh, a, um, um, a kind of a window into Islamic learning now, suddenly a, a different mode of reproducing these texts. Uh, but at the beginning, these are basically these kind of post-classical texts that I, that I spoke about. Comment, you know, many of these early texts are just commentaries uh, that that uh, that reproduce the manuscripts that were used, you know, at, at that time. Um, when but, we say post-classical, we mean let's say post-medieval. Let's say would be right, right. Uh, I.e., I, the, the 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 works that were written, you know, um, you know, within you know nineteenth century or eighteenth or seventeenth century. Um, that, that share the features of, of very often being commentaries or, or several having several, several layers of commentary. Um, but um, with, these, you know, with this modern state formation in Egypt particularly, but throughout the Middle East, you have uh, emergence of, of new uh, readerships. So people who learn how to read and write, who are not necessarily um, members of, of, of the religious classes, they haven't gone to seminaries, they've gone to uh, to now public schooling. There's no, it's not universal schooling yet, but there, there are uh, uh, public schools. Um, you have new, new bureaucratic, uh, a new bureaucratic class. Uh, in Egypt, again, many of these people are not originally Egyptians. They have Kurdish backgrounds or whatever, uh, but, but their prestige language becomes Arabic. And that, that, that is really something that myself, you know, I was myself surprised by this, by this result. Um, that that um, that that uh, the kind of you know neoclassical poetry, for example, that that that, that we know Shawki, for example, this was basically the first or second generation of people who really, um, you know, as, as the term neoclassical already says, that kind of uh, turned away from the recent Arab, from from recent ways of writing Arabic, even to a more classical mode of uh, uh, of composing poetry. And so you have this, these, these new elites that are interested in, in older stuff, and they're interested in kind of um, uh, uh, having books to read. You know, they, they, they've gotten used to reading newspapers, for example. They've, they have gotten used to either reading whatever French literature, either in the original or in translation. And now they are saying, well, you know, what about our stuff? Uh, and uh, they... Um, um, they start collecting manuscripts. Uh, they, they become aware that, that Orientalists are buying up a lot of stuff and they're trying sometimes successfully, sometimes not successfully to compete with them in, in buying up these works. Um, and then as a next stage, um, they are uh, paying for these works to be printed. And so here, the, the, the way that the Bulak press and later presses worked is that the press has a corrector, the Arabic is musahih, uh, that is somebody who is employed by the press, um, who is most of the time, uh, at least in the 19th century, a graduate from an Azhar uh, seminary, religious seminary or university, I don't know what they call it, um, um, and who 
uh, will take the manuscript, um, will um, supervise the typesetting, and then will proofread the, the proofs to make sure that the, the text is correct. And if there are problems with the manuscript, we'll, we'll kind of try to solve those problems. Um, you do not have yet a, um, a kind of a best practice in the sense of, uh, you know, you have to gather all the available manuscripts of a text, for example, which is also very difficult given that uh, the libraries haven't been cataloged yet. So how would you even do this, right? You know, these people have a job to do. They can't spend five years gathering, you know, traveling the world and gathering all the manuscripts of a specific work. So, you know, they are told by their boss one day, we're printing this, you know, whether it's that the government wants it or that you have a private individual who wants this text printed, and then they have to make it happen as good as they can. Um, in the light of that, uh, the kind of original Bulak printings are actually pretty good compared to some of the kind of um, products of, 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 pri of, uh, of private presses that we see in, the, in, the, in later decades. Once, you know, in the 1860s, you have, uh, you have private presses springing up in Egypt uh, that, uh, you know, some of them are better than others. But some of them have atrocious practices. Uh, some of them uh, also produce good stuff. But um, uh, the, the important thing is that you have a, the, the, the corrector has an important uh, role in uh, bringing the manuscripts into print. And uh, that, that, that's one of the, the kind of roles, but also the kind of individuals that I wanted to highlight in my book, that these are people we really rely on in our knowledge of these, these older texts. Uh, it, it is really their expertise that, that allows us uh, to, to read these texts. Um, and, 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 and a lot of these people have never even been mentioned properly in, in, secondary, in secondary scholarship. And um, so that, that, that's, that's kind of one type of people I wanted to celebrate uh, in this. Uh, I, I, uh, I do not focus on the technology itself so much rather than about the people um, using that technology. That's a really um, important point, Ahmed, isn't it? And because for perhaps uh, some of our listeners, I, I should perhaps point out that, that there's, a, there's a very influential work among historians about printing, published about four, 40 years ago. Elizabeth Einstein, The Printing Press as an Agent of Change. That's about early modern Europe. And, but as the title suggests, one of her arguments, or the, in a sense the core, is that it's actually te technology-driven changes. And, and, and you're actually very interested in, in looking at individuals and how actual people in their particular circumstances, people make choices and decisions and have actually rather different agendas that, that, that shape, in a sense, the intellectual and religious direction. Of course, they, of course, there are all many other contingent factors as well. They don't necessarily end up with what they intended, of course. But nonetheless, it's not just the, 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 the technology that's driving change. And the other, I think, really important thing that you brought out there as well, and goes back to your earlier point about not assuming Arabic as always a given sort of omnipresent and kind of similarly important religious or intellectual language throughout Islamic history. And the point you made is that, that even in Egypt, Arabic isn't necessarily a given sort of as the most important language in the 19th century or beforehand. I mean, the figure you mentioned, Muhammad Ali, the, the ruler from 1805 to 1848, who sets up this really important pioneering state-led press in the Bulak suburb of Cairo. He himself is, is an ethnic Albanian born in Greece who learns Ottoman Turkish and then comes to Egypt and then starts a printing press that prints, as you mentioned, the first book's an Italian Arabic dictionary, it prints uh, text in Ottoman as well, but then gradually Arabic becomes more and more important. And that's again a, perhaps a, a set of decisions as well as the perhaps unintended consequences of of some of those decisions by particular people that you're interested in. So the, the most striking aspect of your research, uh, I think, is, is how you've shown them the printing and then these individuals and decisions, but printing was used by people to bring to light what you've called the, the, the Arabic lost classics of Islamic thought. So how did this happen then? How were these lost classics, these Arabic lost classics brought to light and, and what were the results? Yeah, I mean, th th there is this um, in in the in the historiography of 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 the modern Middle East. Very often, people juxtapose kind of modernists versus traditionalists, in the sense of there were people who uh, who wanted change, and then people who wanted to keep things as they were before. And 
very often these modernists are identified with the West. So it's, it's somehow um, they were for kind of Western reforms or something like this. And, and you know, I, I, you know, people fall into this kind of trap that, um, that, that somehow the Middle East is one thing um, and, and you're either for it or you're against it rather than um, recognizing that, you know, if you have a tradition and, and it's a written tradition, I mean, if, if you have just, an, if you have an oral tradition, things get lost much easier, right? If you have uh, some sort of piece of information or cultural practice, whatever, once it gets forgotten, it's kind of gone. But if you have a written tradition, books can survive forever, right? Uh, and so you have all kinds of things that can be revived in various conditions, right? And, 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 and even that the 19th century and early 20th century is, is a time of, of such great change. Um, uh, the, the way I see this period is that you have, I mean, the way I define these modernists is that to a large extent, they were um, looking at their own tradition at the depth of their own tradition. And they, they um, saw this tradition not as, as, a, as a monolithic and unified thing, but rather as a, as a multivocal thing. And, and they chose to highlight certain things and, and they found particularly classical works, older works that, are not, that, are, that were not Im immediately there that had been forgotten to be very fertile for these kind of critiques that they were leveling against uh, the society, the culture, the religious ideas, political ideas that they were finding themselves in, in their lifetimes. And so there, there is this, uh, you know, I, I had this discussion recently with, with colleagues and we were thinking about, we were talking about India and there were uh, reforms in India in the, in the 19th century about uh, changing the way that Muslim judges were appointed. And in this region, um, Muslim judges were, Muslim judgeship was hereditary. It, it ran in families. And then the British abolished this and um, uh, required a specific kind of set of exams to be passed to become a judge. And one of my colleagues basically said that this is an imposition of Western rationality over whatever, an Eastern society or Muslim society, whatever. And I said, you know, like, if you look at classical Islamic thought, um, you know, the judgeship is not hereditary, right? This is, this is something that happened whenever it happened, but it's, it's, it's certainly not something that is, that is the original theorists would have imagined. So, uh, in a sense, what these reforms did was kind of establish Muslim judgeship in a way that is actually classically much more, much closer to the classical ideal than, than it was in the, in, the, in the 19th century. So the question of what, what reform actually means or whether, you know, um, uh, you know in, in, in European history, we're used to the idea that, that you can have the Renaissance, which is a, a, a reclaiming of, 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 uh, of antique ideas or ideas that we thought useful from, from, from earlier ages as a way of ref reform. When we think about the Middle East, we think, oh yes, uh, modernization just necessarily means to me something taken from the West. And so you get into this strange binary of either you have to be a traditionalist, then you are authentic, then you must be different from the West. But if you are some sort of uh, advocating for something that is um, seen to be also more, more rational in the West, then, then you are a Westernizer, right? But, uh, but in, 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 this, in this particular moment, in the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, many of these reformers that, that we know as reformers, people like Muhammad Abdul, for example, uh, who like any handbook of, of the modern Middle East will talk about Muhammad Abdul, but hardly anybody ever mentions that he was so crucially engaged in the editing, in the finding, discovering, editing, and publishing of classical works. And he thought that not, well, that wasn't his side hobby. He thought that was like one of the main things that he was doing um, uh, to Muslim societies was revival of useful classical works. And, um, and so that's, that's uh, uh, in, in his case, you can see that, you know, he, he established um, basically um, uh, charitable uh, organizations that, um, um, that, found manuscripts and that had them edited and had them published. Um, and so th there is a, there is a kind of, there's a radical uh, edge to this, to this discovery, 
that that I I, I really wanted to to point out. So as you've explained, then when when print um, is adopted by by different figures in in nineteenth century Egypt with their different interests, their different intellectual, religious, and the, the political agendas, they're looking back on this vast corpus of of manuscripts, some of which are available, many of which are just not, and they're making decisions about which figures and indeed which works they they should revive, put into print, and indeed make more available, and therefore sort of in a sense so to speak, technologically amplify, and sort of make these, these texts more, more visible. So, so perhaps can you give us a, a sense of perhaps a couple of figures who, who represent these lost Arabic classics who were revived, amplified, or, or not so successfully amplified through print? I mean, um, um, if, if, if we take two important Muslim thinkers, Ibn Arabi, the kind of Sufi philosophical uh, mind of uh, kind of thirteenth century Andalusian thinker, and uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, the fourteenth century uh, Muslim theologian and, and thinker. Um, Ibn Arabi had been um, very influential in the previous centuries, and um, and therefore his works were actually some of the earliest printed works as well. Uh, so already from the eighteen thirties, eighteen forties onwards, even even his large books. Uh, were printed, not necessarily well printed, but but printed. Um, while uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's work uh, had basically um, uh, been limited to very small circles of people and was not published. I mean, the first work by Ibn Taymiyyah was written was published in the in, in 1900. Uh, so basically, two generations later. Um, uh, but the the the. Um, um, like Ibn Arabi stood very much for the um, for the very powerful intellectual current of of Sufism as it existed in in the Muslim world uh, um, in the early nineteenth century. It it was the kind of kind of the high cultured uh, intellectual ideas that that inspired most of the Sufi brotherhoods who were you know who were very uh, powerful institutions, right? I mean institutions. Uh, with with very clear like religious hierarchies, institutions that had political power, economic power, they were supervising uh, endowments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So these were kind of multinational companies almost. Um, uh, so there, there was a lot of religious power uh, intermeshed with with other types of power. While Ibn Taymiyyah was, uh, in fact, had been uh, a, a, crit a strong critic of of, of Ibn Arabi uh, during his lifetime, and. Uh, um, the, 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 the selective revival of Ibn Taymiyyah's work was thereby also a critique um, of Ibn Arabi's work in, 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 uh, in particular, but also kind of more uh, kind of popular works of, of uh, popular practices of, of Muslim devotion, such as uh, the kind of shrine visitation culture. Um, and so you have a, you know, a clearly traceable network of scholars who have this uh, kind of uh, reformist uh, idea that, uh, uh, um, that, that, that that a lot of these public uh, popular practices are superstitions, right? People uh, going to shrines, uh, uh, sacrificing animals at shrines, and 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 uh, petitioning dead saints to, for for their wives to have sons or whatever. That that these are kind of embarrassing superstitions, and that by revive, reviving Ibn Taymiyyah's critique of Ibn Arabi and critique of of, of shrine visitation what they're actually doing is they are modernizing Muslim societies. Um, and, and so um, um, between 1900 and 1930, Ibn Taymiyyah goes from basically an unknown thinker to being one of the, one of the most published and, 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 and controversial figures, right? And, and he continues until, until today to, um, uh, uh, to cause these controversies where, 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 you know, wherever he's mentioned or how his works are mentioned. Um, so so um, um, these reformers also, they have people with whom they identify, right? Uh, and, and the people who are, they identify with, these are the people and the, uh, that, they, that they work towards publishing. That, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's given us a sense then that, that 
that even though Ibn Arabi, he's he's the big sort of figure of the say the the intellectual heavyweight of that Sufi religious establishment when printing arrives or printing is taken up in in the Islamic world. But as time goes on, the people who are opposing that establishment, what we might call reformists and so on, promote this figure Ibn Taymiyyah, who in his own lifetime was famously imprisoned because he was so controversial. But yet the legacy perhaps in the present day is that, that the works of Ibn Taymiyyah, I don't think everyone's ever done a bibliographical count on this, but I, I think sort of it, uh, it, it's probably fair to say that Ibn Taymiyyah's works are much more available worldwide now, whether in Arabic or indeed in translation, than than Ibn Arabi's work. So, so there is this amplification process, which really is, um, you know, ha has very large effects, even perhaps a separate question, but perhaps even amounting to uh, a reformation across the Islamic world that, that indeed, you know, as the reformation in Europe is a contested and very slow process. So in other words, then this is more than a story of printing, isn't it? Because as more people in Egypt and indeed elsewhere took up printing, new intellectual tools and methods are taken up, as well as this selection from these past forgotten classics. And these methods change not only how Arabic texts were made available, but also how they're interpreted. So can you give us a sense then of, of not just the, as it were, the technology, there's this printing machine, but give us a sense, a few examples perhaps, of these new critical methods, these new intellectual, even theological methods, that, that emerge as well alongside printing or in the wake of printing and how these recondite skills were used to change ideas about Muslim theology or indeed Muslim history or Muslim society. Right, so uh, the, the 19th century was, was um, you know, on the one hand, it was, it was a, a time in which uh, Arabic print really took off, <clears throat> but it was also a, a time in, in Europe in which uh, the idea of, you know, of philology uh, as a science that deals with books, that deals with the written word, really became a, um, a science of great prestige. Something philology, the, the study of language, isn't it? In my right, right. I mean, it, it, it is. It is such an kind of today. It's such an obscure word. I'm going to have to explain it, but uh, it used to be the like the big thing, right? It used to be the the Foucault and Derrida of, uh, <laughs> uh, of the 19th century. And, and, and there, there were so many uh, promises of, um, of knowledge and of, of understanding cultures, but also of, of kind of historical rigor. Uh, and so you have, for example, a famous German uh, philologist, uh, Lachmann, who develops, or not develops, but another story, uh, a way of, of, of dealing with manuscripts that allows people to, uh, to do kind of um, textual criticism um, by um, reconstructing earlier forms of a text. So, um, you know, if you have a text, I mean, we rarely have the original uh, uh, copies that, that the authors wrote, right? We have copies of copies of copies of copies, and that in, introduces all kinds of nightmares and headaches for, for editors. Uh, he developed or he sought to develop a methodology that allows us to reconstruct the early, earlier versions of the text from, from manuscripts, from fallible, you know, later generation manuscripts. He did this on the basis of kind of the Greco-Roman uh, 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 texts uh, that, that, you know, that from which we are, where we are separated by, you know, seven, eight hundred years from the original texts. Um, but this was then um, in, the, in the later 19th century, these, these methods, um, these very sophisticated theories of analyzing um, man, you know, gathering all the manuscripts of a work and then looking at the different at the differences between them and therefore then establishing an earlier uh, version uh, kind of that is closer to what the author intended. Um, in the late, later 19th century, Orientalists uh, applied these methods developed in, in uh, study of, of, of classics and the study of uh, kind of the Hebrew Bible and the, uh, the New Testament uh, to uh, Arabic works as well. So you have uh, Orientalism kind of uh, stepping forward and, and, and developing its own method, it's ex an explicit method of, of editing Arabic texts that is different uh, from, from the way that I described earlier, where you have a, uh, a corrector uh, in a press in, 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 in Cairo, um, kind of re relying on, on, on one manuscript or maybe two manuscripts and his, in his knowledge 
and not giving a critical apparatus, not giving footnotes where he says, well, in, in this one manuscript, you know, this word is used, and another manuscript, another word is used, etc., etc. He doesn't describe at the beginning where the manuscripts are found, or he doesn't describe what, what you know, like, he gives none of the none of that data that that uh, Orientalists start to use, uh, start to give in the 19th century. So, so you you have the emergence of kind of a split of of methods of how to produce texts. Uh, and this would kind of break out in the in the in the in the 20th century when um, you have the emergence of of, of universities in, in the Arab world uh, at which kind of Orientalist methods are taught, and then you have this debate. You know, are indigenous editions worse than Orientalist editions? And you know, you have some people saying that, oh, well, uh, we can only understand our own tradition through Orientalist uh, philology, for example. It it, it it plays into the whole issue of of colonialism right do we do we can we understand ourselves or do we need these rational rationalist foreigners to kind of interpret our tradition for us um and um you know so, so so there is there is a lot of discussions that that i uh that i i found from the, from the early 20th century that is that very much is uh talking to the about the question of that edward said raised in his book orientalism but really you know uh, half a century before edward said did, did this uh, in, in very interesting ways um uh, and really focused on on the question of what do we do with these texts that we found now uh, how you know first of all are they authentic how do we find out whether a text that has an author on top is actually authentic um and there is there's there's uh, Orientalists are much more interested in the, I mean, I'm, I'm stereotyping here, they're more interested in the manuscripts. Uh, um, uh, Muslim scholars are more interested in kind of word choice, anachronisms, is, does the style fit that specific period, etc. Uh, so there's different methodologies that emerge uh, uh, among Orientalists and, and, and Arab editors. Um, but what is important in the, in the very early 20th century is that you have a new figure emerging um, in, the, in the Arab world, which is the, the, the editor. Uh, so you have the corrector called Musahe. Now then you have uh, a new figure that appears on the front cover of, of edited texts, the muhaqqaq, the editor. Um, and these are people who are not employed by presses, but they are scholars, whether independent scholars or scholars that, that have some sort of uh, uh, affiliation with institutions, whether it's universities or seminars or something else. Um, who um, kind of insert themselves into the text by writing an introduction, a scholarly introduction. Um, uh, they um, uh, insert themselves into the process by, by gathering manuscripts um, and, and, and doing the, the, the philological work uh, of, of, of comparing them and, and choosing the best reading to put in the main text. Um, and they are also the ones who then engage with Orientalist philology and you know, sometimes adopt some of the methods or uh, write treaties in which they disagree with that methodology, etc. So you, you have a new cultural figure uh, of people who decide what the texts are that are worth being uh, published, right? So the, these, these original correctors, they just did whatever somebody else put on their desk, while these editors were people who stepped out and said, well, this is an important work, uh, and we have to print it for this and this specific reasons. Uh, and so that there is a... Um, um, uh, th there is a, a, um, a kind of a, a greater theoretical sophistication that comes in the uh, in the way these texts are produced at this at this specific moment, and uh, um, what happens as a result is that we have much earlier histories, we have much earlier uh, theological works that are um, um, that are kind of introduced into the cultural bloodstream. Um, by people who have specific interests, as you know, as I mentioned before, in specific uh, interventions in cultural discussions that are going on in the 19th and early 20th century, and, and I think that that's an important uh, point to take away. That that you know, when we look at uh, um, you know, when we open a book uh, from the 9th century or the 10th century, or you know, kind of one of these classical works that we that we study. Um, very often we're looking at that time period through discussions in the 19th and 20th century that, that uh, motivated somebody to pick up a manuscript and edit it uh, at this specific time period. And, um, and that kind of uh, 
that connection of 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 of, of modern uh, Middle Eastern history and classical Islamic thought was very important for me to kind of highlight. And it is not just I think above your own interest. It's it just simply important, isn't it? Because in in a sense, there's a, there's there's a, there's a parallel going on here with this this rediscovery of lost classics, isn't there, between the Renaissance in Europe? And it's no uh, coincidence then, uh, I, I dare say, that 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 Arab historians and Arab thinkers themselves dubbed this process that you're describing as a nahda, a word we can translate as awakening or indeed a renaissance. So the rediscovery of these older texts to be able to write perhaps more sophisticated, more text critical, more scrupulous uh, histories of earlier periods or indeed lost classics, literary, philological, philosophical, theological, sectarian or otherwise. So there isn't a sense then to simplify a, a nahda, a renaissance that comes about through, through as one of the outcomes then of this, the, this usage of printing. So just as in Europe then, the, the spread of printing not only brought about enormous changes, its impact was so enormous that sort of in a sense, as you've hinted, it, it's paradoxically invisible because it's hard to imagine now a world without printed books. Or if we open up any book about a book about you know what is Islam or Islamic thought we 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 tend to not realize the impact of print of bringing these books back to in a sense back to life or back to back into use after they've been perhaps forgotten for for centuries. But if we look from the perspective of the Middle East then rather than Europe. As we sum up, what would you say have been the most important religious consequences of the printing revolution in the Arab Islamic world? Um, I would say that uh, what print has, has done most, um, most powerfully is to, to disprove a kind of a sense of a unitary tradition. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, if, you go back to the early 19th century, there were very powerful um, uh, Sufi brotherhoods uh, all over the Muslim world. Um, there was a sense that if you wanted to be a Muslim, or at least uh, let's say, if you want to be a Sunni Muslim, you, you would have to be part of one of the four schools of law. Um, so there were a very clear sense of, of uh, there were the very clear institutions of, 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 of religion. Um, and religious knowledge had its gatekeepers, um, uh, kind of a religious scholarly elite with a specific kind of uh, uh, seminary education. Now, um, what this rediscovery of the classics has shown, uh, at least to me, is that there, there is this, I mean, uh, when we you know, teach an intro, intro to Islam, we would say that, you know, Islam doesn't have a church, for example, right? Um, uh, that that there is this that there is this kind of uh, um, lack of strong religious authority, and I think that has been um, that's to a large extent a, a product as well of, of this rediscovery of the classics. Uh, that uh, that many of these modernists what what they explicitly wanted to show is that um, look at these earlier scholars. They did not believe you had to. Uh, adhere to one of the four schools of thought. They did not believe that your local Sufi sheikh was infallible or you know, could tell you who to marry and who to divorce. Um, and so, so the, the, there is a dissolution of authority. And, and you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is another thing, right? You have uh, uh, these days, people are going back and forth, whether that's a good thing or you know, to, to, to either brag with it or, or to, 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 to blame all the problems of the Muslim world on that, on that feature. But I think that... Um, that, that the, the, the broadening of, um, um, of uh, the Islamic intellectual tradition, parallel to the broadening of people who can read this stuff. Um, and I mean, a third point that I'm not really talking about much in my book, but it's also important is that the, the, the insistence of, of Arabic and of classical Arabic and modern standard Arabic being so close to classical Arabic um, means that there's a continuity, right? Um, th there were discussions in the early 20th century to, to do what the Turks did, right? to Latinize, to colloquialize, which would have basically meant 
that this connection would have been cut, right? That, that, that still today only university professors could read these old texts. But in fact, what, what Arabs basically decided on was that, that, their, that their high language would, re would, would remain in a form that would allow them to actually read, to access just with a normal school education, classical texts, right? Uh, and so in that sense, that kind of, um, um, uh, you know, opening the doors, uh, allowing educated uh, people uh, to, to, to have access to these, to these texts themselves, rather than relying on some sort of religious elite. I think that is, that is the most significant uh, legacy of this moment. Professor Ahmed Ashemsi, thank you for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you so much, Nawa. Da 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 da